I'm um, Dr. Gail Keenitz. I'm, I'm here largely, to be honest with you, because I was Janelle Gertz Robinson's mentor, her teacher, when she was an undergraduate. Um, currently, I'm working on the freelance editor. I moved with my husband to the Philadelphia area, where he's at that other institution, I believe it's been referred to, the, the University of Pennsylvania. So temporarily, I'm not in a full-time faculty position. Um, but I left one that I miss too recently. And so I'm also a repressed academic, which means that I have too much to say and too little time, and I'm going to probably try to squeeze a course into this one session, so slow me down as well as if I go too quickly. In fact, in preparing this talk on permission to speak, contemporary women writers and religious tradition, I sat down and I thought it through, jotted down my notes. Can you hear me well now? Jotted down my notes. My husband and four-year-old daughter left to go for what was supposed to be a long walk. I was rambling around the house, soliloquizing and pontificating or whatever it is that, that we do when we do those, these sorts of things. Thought I had about 40 minutes worth and they had been gone for two hours as it turns out. So with that in mind and not wanting to keep you longer than is necessary, I'm going to frame the context of this talk before I begin it and I'm going to try to do something I don't do very well, and that is stick with my written script. Otherwise, I'll give you that longer version that will surely put you to sleep, if nothing else, which might not be such a bad thing in the afternoon siesta. I also want to say that my qualifications for this particular talk come from having taught modern women writers courses and having taught some contemporary women writers. But as my talk will probably betray, I'm a Victorianist by training and in many ways by disposition. So I'm going to use this talk to go back to your last formal lectures and what I assume had been covered there, cut a path through modernism and up through postmodernism. Now, this is what I promised my husband I would read. He's a geneticist and tends to deal on minutiae and always accuses me of being German and tomish, as it were, and he said, frame it. Frame it so they know where you're starting, what the middle is, and where you're going. And I would like to do that by framing it in the context of this larger lecture series. I really want, though I didn't know this would happen when I first planned this talk, when I first started jotting down what I would say, I'm going to be bringing you back to the beginning. And as recent as, to be perfectly honest, four days ago, I didn't know that this, this ending, this final lecture, would be so near to the beginning and to what you've already discussed. So. When I sat down to begin writing this talk, or at least thinking it through, I realized I had a number of options available as a focus for the culminating lecture on 12, or more realistically, 13 centuries of English religious verse. I also realized that discussing contemporary religious verse, women writers in particular, revealed a surprise ending. I have to admit that I didn't know this when I began it, but I also have to admit that for the propagandistic purposes of introducing you to some new poets, I'm glad that it did, because there are some first-rate writers whom I think you can tuck right into this long roster in this, this great tradition you've been studying. These poets, and I probably should have listed them on the board, though I think I gave you a lecture overview that you just received today. Could you? I don't have a copy. <laughs> oh, thank you. If you could check to see, and maybe you'll want to annotate it slightly further by adding a few other names, yes. U.A. Fanthorpe, Gertrude Schnackenberger, 
wonderful names, aren't they? <laughs> Gertrude Schnackenberger. On the bottom of the page, there's a, there's a footnote. My way of trying to tuck in some more content at the last minute. Gertrude Schnackenberg, Denise Levertov, whom you've read, Louise Erdrich, whom you've read, Kathleen Norris, who is best known as a novelist, essayist, but is also a poet. And then I'll be referring to people like Lee Young Lee, um, peripherally, Scott Cairns and Scott Russell Sanders. And I believe you read David Satino. It was, he was in your packet. These are some of the contemporary poets whose achievement, I would like to convince you today, is actually quite remarkable at this particular moment in literary and cultural history. And if you'll notice as well, I've provided some biographies of, of UA Fanthorpe. Claire, do you know UA Fanthorpe? She's now required reading for the A-levels in, in, in England, so I, I thought she might be familiar. And, Gert, and Gertrude Schnackenberg. Okay, so to begin, as it were, and again, note the reverse order of the talk. I'm going to talk about poetic and religious traditions and then go on to contemporary women writers. I have some good news to tell you and some bad news, and since I know that you're not a typical audience, I just sat in on an incredibly lively, wonderfully informed discussion in which people were talking about poetry, throwing around the technical terms, and paying very good and careful attention to the nuanced and at times ambiguous or multivalent meaning of an Auden poem and then again of Eliot. You're, you're not a typical audience, um, so you may find what I have to say comes as somewhat of a bit of a surprise. And in the familiar format, I'll start with the bad news first. First, for a number of years, observers, critics, and even some practitioners of poetry have declared the genre to be dead or dying. Bad news for the would-be poets in the crowd. The sickly condition of the genre was premised at least as early as 1934 in a very influential essay by the literary critic Edmund Wilson, and he entitled that particular essay, Is Verse a Dying Technique? In it, he predicted that the future of great literature would belong entirely to prose. More than 50 years later, Joseph Epstein, whom, if you know him, is a kind of general commentator on, on the contemporary scene, a very prolific writer, seems to have answered his question when in the 1980s he wrote an essay entitled, Who Killed Poetry? One could push these dire predictions even further back into literary history. Even though the Victorian age sponsored great poets, Christine Rossetti, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Browning, Tennyson, Whitman and Dickinson on the American side, to name but a few, many of them wrote knowing that they were at the end of a centuries-long fad or legacy, and perhaps a dying tradition even then. The Victorian poet Matthew Arnold deemed the entire 19th century necessarily an age of prose, invoking the temper of the times, but simulating that pattern as well in his own career. He completely gave up writing poetry mid-career, and critics like to make a lot out of that. And though he in many ways regretted the ascendancy of a prose literary culture over a poetic or dra dramatic one, he followed the pattern. The influential critic Thomas Carlyle likewise urged gifted writers to give up poetry, to abandon it, and use the tool, and tool is indicative of his agenda as well, of literary prose to reach wide audiences. And the already famous poet Elizabeth Barrett, who was famous long before her, her husband to be, 
um, said to Robert Browning at one point, has Carlyle actually forbidden you to sing? Because Carlyle wrote one of his typical emphatic exclamatory letters telling Browning he was a genius, but give up writing poetry. In fact, he told him he didn't know how to write poetry, which I find shocking given, given that was my dissertation. Even if the Victorian poets were not aware of their precarious condition, those who followed in their stead surely were. Virginia Woolf, who in so many ways effectively and practically sponsored T.S. Eliot, considered him a gifted anomaly. In a room of one's own, she offered her own elegiac observations about the state of poetry in the 20th century. In a passage that functions as a kind of ubisunt, a literary device in which a lament is put in the form of a question, she asked, where now are the poets? Who can name one living now who is as great as Tennyson or Rossetti were then? She concludes one can't, and that, in the words of the typical metaphor, it's impossible to sing. And Virginia Woolf goes even further and says, one can't even hum under one's breath in the same way anymore. The world has changed, and it won't be the same again. And poetry is no longer as vital or vibrant as it could be. And she loved poetry. On a more recent note, a few weeks ago, I was looking for a book by a literary critic, Helen Vendler. I think she's still at Harvard. She's written on Herbert and Yeats and Shakespeare's sonnets. It's called Soul Says, and when I got to the section where I expected her book to be shelved, I found no fewer than five absolutely elementary introductions to poetry that started out with, what is poetry? And never got much farther than that, as it, as it turns out. And, and these, these are books that I, the nature at least, was of the kind of book I associated with my eighth grade literature class. You know, poems can rhyme or they might not. They have this kind, one written by a MacArthur fellow, which is known popularly as the genius grant, as it were. Absolutely elementary. Some of the better critics of our day, John Hollander and others, have also written revised editions of their books on poetry, meant to be kind of primers. How do you go about reading a poem? In each case, the, the first piece of advice was go slowly. You can't read it as you would prose. Take your time and attention, as I, as I know you have been. But that, of course, suggests that not only writing, but reading poetry is a lost art. Though, as I said, you're an atypical audience and you're proving quite otherwise. When the resigned detractors or would-be promoters say that tr the tradition of poetry is dead or dying, they are, of course, engaging in poetic license and hyperbole. For they're not saying that modern or contemporary poetry is non-existent. They're saying that it has been marginalized to the point of being a virtually dead tradition, that it no longer commands a respectful attention or mainstream following, and that it no longer embodies or creates cultural authority, all of those things which it had done in the past. Poets today are hardly even recognized or known by name. Did any of you hear of any of those poets whom I just named? Schnackenberg, Fanzor, Lee Young Lee? He's hot on the circuit right now, so <laughs> had you heard of one, I would have expected it to be Lee Young Lee. They're, they're wonderful poets, but you don't know their, their names, which is a shame, and I'm, I'm going to keep throwing them out <laughs> at you so, so that you do. I've even got some books here, which you'd like, you'd like to look at them. In a book called The Last Intellectuals, Russell Jacoby even said that a famous poet in the late 20th century is a poet who is at least known to a few other poets, which shows how minimal the claims are. Relatively few people realize that there's a poet laureate of the United States. Show of hands, how many of you knew that there was a poet laureate? <laughs> Show of hands, how many of you know who the poet laureate is? 
<laughs> Robert Pinsky, in, in case you're wondering. Oh, the Jim Lair News Hour. <laughs> Which is great. He, I think he is truly reviving successfully the concept of a public poet. He really is in his, I don't know if you know about his... Um, Poems Across America project or something like that, which which sounded so, I mean, after you've been in the academy a while, it sounded so, you know, frighteningly naive to go across the states and find people who would read or recite their favorite poetry, you know, everyone from teachers to electricians to janitors to sanitation workers, whatever. Uh, but it worked, and it's, it's been wonderfully received with, with hardly ever any sarcasm. So, again, you're an atypical audience. You, you weren't supposed to know. Contrast this to the celebrated status of the poets Browning and Tennyson, who in their day held a position that really was analogous. I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, no poetic license here, to the position of our movie stars and sports athletes. You know, Browning was mobbed by a crowd once, and his host asked if he objected to it, and he said, object to it? No, I like it. I've waited 30 years. <laughs> you know? Tennyson had to move because he would find people in his trees outside of his home, waiting to get a glimpse of him. And people stole stuff from Browning, which is one of the more fun things that I dubbed up when I was doing my dissertation. Again, because they wanted a piece of that kind of celebrity. Um, and of course, novelists were popular too, but not in the same way, because the novel in the 19th century was still a bastard form of art. It wasn't high literature. The poets had high literary and cultural status, as well as, as popular status. Contrast that to you're not even knowing the names of most of the poets now. And even though there may be more poets than ever in terms of sheer numbers, in 1992, Dana Joya pointed out, and uh, Dana Joya is a kind of 1990s Wallace Stevens, if you know that poet. He's a businessman who is a poet. He writes for The Atlantic and The New Yorker, and is actually a wonderful critic and essayist of, of contemporary poetry. He pointed out that American poetry now belongs to a subculture, a largely academic subculture at that, and a subculture within the subculture within the subculture. And this culture, they still have a certain residual status. But he says, and I like this comparison, they're like priests in a village of agnostics. They're a curiosity and an anachronism, and they have a certain aura about them because they're such oddities, as it were. And by the way, the title of his book is Can Poetry Matter? Essays on American Culture and Poetry, which has a really um, interesting introduction. So once again, there's an interrogatory form for the title of it, all suggesting that poetry has a, a dubious claim on our attention now. In addition to the fact that few people can name contemporary poets, I might have also mentioned that there's now a National Poetry Month, and the big chain stores are doing their best to promote poets in, in poetry. Poetry itself is now rarely reviewed in the popular press, though it once used to be a mainstay. The New York Review of Books still prints the occasional poem and reviews the intermittent important collections of poetry, but those are usually by people who've already named it, na made it. Um, Heaney, these I expect you to know, Milos, Ted Hughes, and the like. So, that, so they're not, there's no arena for them to make it with general and popular culture. If they've made it already, then they're accepted. In 1984, the National Book Awards, I think I've got the year right on that, dropped the category of poetry altogether. They decided they were recognizing and naming what wasn't important to people. And I couldn't resist putting this in. The price of a slim volume of contemporary poetry speaks for itself. I figured out that I paid um, let's see, 
Here's UA Fanthorpe selected poems, $15 on average for the last five selections of poetry that I purchased. And I was tempted to go find it like a Grisham novel and compare it, you know, as a, as a cost per page analysis. And I'd, I'd like to think that we pay more for poetry because there's, there's more intrinsic value on that printed page. It took longer. Somebody today asked how long it took Auden to write The Shield of Achilles. Well, if we added up his hours, it would be far below minimum wage that he was earning, whereas the popular novelist wouldn't do so bad. But I know that it's, it's a copy-sold formula, and, and poetry is cheaper to publish. I actually i am I'm doing editing for a press right now, and I asked about the cost of publication. They said, oh, it's cheaper. It's just that it doesn't sell. So we have to ask more of those who buy it. That's why I keep trying to do my bit for the arts by buying it. Now, you may have some quarrels with such a broadly inclusive overview as I hope you do, and I do, but for now, I would simply like you to accept the general conclusion that poetry and poets no longer command the respectful attention that was once part of their domain. On to the second story of death or decline, which is not so much a subcultural experience in the 20th century, and with which I'm sure you're familiar. My favorite euphemism, however, for this next tale of decline comes from an editorial I read in connection with a protest sponsored by the SCA, and that's the Students and Citizens for Atheism at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. <clears throat> in case you didn't know that. <laughs> they were protesting the removal of the nativity scene in front of the state capitol during the Christmas season. And even, even though I always picture this in my mind as if it were in the 60s, I think, because I can imagine a sandwich board placard and a, a protester going up and down the street, it took place in the 80s, the late 80s at that. And in the editorial that I was reading at the time, it said, God's time is up. His lease on the world is expired. It's time for the termination of the dominance of Christianity. Those are all quotations from an editorial. The expiration of the lease, of course, referred to that particular phenomenon in the Western world that we more loosely call the death of God. In the popular academic parlance of the 70s and 80s, the protester was telling us that what we have experienced is a paradigm shift. We are now living in what is regularly called, if not understood, as the postmodern world. Although postmodernism is often vaguely and contentiously defined, one of the signature features common to most definitions of postmodernism, employed within the humanities at least, is that the age in which we are living operates under a suspicion of meta-narratives. And meta-narratives are those governing stories, histories, or myths, depending upon one's proclivities and point of view, that once formed the basis for a common ethical and, I would say, aesthetic system. And for us, of course, and for you in this course, it is primarily the Judeo-Christian tradition, history, and mythos that operated as a meta-narrative giving coherence to culture. And the Christ event, I'm putting that in quotation marks too because that's how it's now diplomatically being called, being the meta-narrative which you have been studying through the most poetry in the most recent sessions. Though postmodernism, is postmodernism a familiar term? I mean, William Sapphire was making fun of it 10 years ago and I saw it in, in both this fashion and sports section of the New York Times, so I assume it's being bandied about by almost everyone if you, if you can find it in those sections. Though its borders, its originary borders, aren't demarcated until the 1960s at the earliest or the 1980s at the latest, the more general paradigm shift, or if you want to further update your lexicon of academic words, the challenge to the hegemony, which premised postmodernism, took place at least 100 years ago. It is the phenomenon popularly called the death of God, 
And depending upon how one determines the moment of death, it's, it's like opera, death scenes and culture can go on endlessly. <laughs> think it's over, but there, there's one more note, there's one more aria. The death of God either took place in the 18th century, broadly the Enlightenment period, or in the 19th century, when one can pinpoint for dramatic purposes Nietzsche's proclamation that God is dead. As the talks last night and this morning probably pointed out, the 19th century writers were hesitant to proclaim God clearly present or absent, dead or alive, but they were ingenious at taking the pulse of God in indirect ways and monitoring their own faith conditions. T.S. Eliot called the doubt of Tennyson's poem In Memoriam a fine thing, and he meant it as a compliment, loaded, of course, with some ambiguities and ironies that were intentional. The skepticism of the Victorians compared to the indifference of the moderns showed a people struggling with doubt precisely because they believed. In the 19th century, and this should be familiar by now, I'm sure the findings of science, particularly geology and Darwinian biology, the demythologizing of the Bible, as it was called by the French writer Renan and the German Strauss, as well as the exegetical method of German higher criticism, which itself grew out of practice of Christian hermeneutics, all worked to chip away or shake the foundations of Christian faith. And John Ruskin, a, a rather famous cultural critic of his own day, said he could no longer read the Old Testament without hearing the clink of the geologist's hammer at the end of every verse, that it worked as a kind of cadence in his mind. The hesitancy to doubt the existence of God and the veracity of the Bible remained paramount, however, and Victorian literature was the struggle, record of that struggle. By the late 20th century, such self-conscious hesitancy to doubt God or proclaim him dead is largely a matter of personal, not public drama. Indeed, in the late 20th century and early 21st century, the reverse is more likely to be the case. In an interesting book called God and the Poets by David Deitches, he traces the appearance of God as a literary character from the Psalms and Job all the way up through. People tend to like to stop at 1945 for various reasons when they, when they talk about coming up to the present. And he notices that you know, God successively seems to be more hidden or that he disappears. But of course, the great difference there is that God is premised, premised as hiding, premised as not being there. Whereas in the current literature, God is absent, and I, uh, Martin Marty, a Lutheran um, theologian and a historian, um, he's now, well, he's won so many awards, it would be, I'll, I won't list them, it would be hard to, to list them all as a kind of uh, cultural critic. In fact, he held a chair in something like the history of culture at the University of Chicago. He gave an interesting anecdote at the 1997 MLA convention of literature professors in, in which he talked about looking at a reference book Religious, religion and literary criticism from, once again, 1945, now it's the beginning point, to the present. And he found, interestingly enough, because he was trying to follow in Deitch's instead, that in 1,029 entries indexed, only three belonged to God. God was only listed three times, and the death of God earned five entries. And this is in a reference book called Contemporary um, Literature and, and Religion. So, there's clearly quite a difference. In his um, 1997 address, uh, Martin Marty said as well that religion has become covertly public and overtly private. And as director of the um, Pew-sponsored project for public religion, simply meaning an investigation, he said that they have one unwritten rule which everyone is required to attend to. He says that, and I've got to find this as a quote, 
No one is allowed to whine about how secular the culture is or how secular elites have banned spiritual, religious, or specifically Christian discourse. It's too easy, too obvious, and too tedious. What had been fashionable in academia, and to some extent still is, had been termed religion bashing, and some of it took place for good reasons. But whatever the reasons, what I want you to note is it signaled the fact that it was culturally acceptable to denounce the underpinnings and practices of a Judeo-Christian heritage. That sort of response was followed by what is now largely perceived as indifference. What are the consequences of this demise and assessment of a kind of academic status quo regarding the informing authority and the literary merit, one might even say the popularity or acceptance of a Judeo-Christian heritage and its relation to poetry? I'd like to give you two sides. First, Helen Vendler, whom I mentioned earlier, one of the great contemporary commentators and critics of poetry. Speaking of her own experience, she offers what I believe must be taken as a given, and this is a quote. Among communities of believers, the Judeo-Christian inheritance can mean these days, as it did in my own, not only the discovery of memorable texts, but also an encounter with superstition, sectarianism, censorship, repression, oppression, fear, and a disingenuous hermeneutic practice. Imposed as an academic study in a course on the history of religion, it can simply be another set of obscure canonical texts to be mastered for an examination. It is no longer a heritage which, with a large living textual base and ardent practice. Only fundamentalists, both Jewish and Christian, still seem to know the Bible intimately. The Hebrew Bible and the New Testament were once not only read, but heard and studied and recited. That is why they became part of the living heritage. Now, even among the nominally religious in America, biblical texts are a dead heritage. To substantiate this view, lest it seem overstated, I might remind you that I was listening to the um, tapes of your previous lectures in the car today, that Professor Fleming had to institute, I think, just a course on the Bible in order to help students get the Call Me Ishmael reference, which begins Moby Dick. That, do I have that right? I don't think he teaches it any longer, but he certainly instituted the course. And then someone asked the question about um, biblical illiteracy. I just did a quick gloss of my Norton anthologies, and those tend to be the designated texts for college classroom um, experiences within the literature study. And I, I looked at the footnote annotations and found Adam and Eve, Noah, and Moses all explained to the readers. And that goes back as far as the 1970s. And when you come further, when you come farther up and closer to the 1990s, they just get thicker and thicker. Now, I would have thought that those references were locked into popular imagination, if not known by source. But these were absolutely, you know, straightforward Adam and Eve from Genesis, the book in which, blah, 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 um, you know, Keats's Ruth amid the alien corn must need a, a long story to support it. And, um, you know, I, I really want to just kind of pound this in because you're not a typical audience, as I've said before. Uh, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, probably about a month ago, uh, some faculty at divinity schools and seminaries were debating whether or not they should institute a remedial course, which the connotations are going to seem odd in a minute, as prerequisite to freshman and sophomore level courses. Now, these are students who have chosen to go on to divinity school or to seminaries. And again, it made the lead article of the Chronicle, you know, is that right or is that an embarrassment to us that we should have to institute? such a course, as it were, and have it be prerequisite. So, you know, and as in that old song, the times they are, or they have been a-changing. 
um, the relationship of literary to text in the late 20th and early 21st century then is of course bearing less reference and exhibiting less knowledge of those seminal texts, Jewish and Christian scriptures, which informed and in many cases inspired some of the greatest literature of the, of the tradition. In his introductory lecture, Professor Fleming also noted how poetry and religious discourse were intimately related from the beginnings of most cultures and faiths that we know of. So it isn't surprising that their demise is nearly synchronous as well. Given that you are volunteer participants in a course on religious poetry, I've assumed that this news is at least a bit troubling. So now let me tell you some good news. There are clear signs, and most of them very, very recent. And, and I, I've been trying to buy collections of poetry to support the arts <laughs> instead of giving to some campaign or as much as I might to PBS. I try to go to Borders or to the university bookstore and take a chance on somebody, as it were. So I've, I've shelled out for a lot of poetry, as it were. Um, and when I, when I look over the, the collections that I've bought and, and look at the poetry that, that compels me to read it again, the 1990s are rich. There are good poets. Poetry as a practice is being revived. I would say there's a mini renaissance going on, and I, you know, I'm, I'm eager to watch it as it were. And, that there, and it, along with this, the worthwhile intersections of faith and literature have not disappeared from culture, from private or public expression, and that the peripheral status of poetry is not nearly so peripheral as has been supposed. That, in fact, religious verse, though it's now being called faith-based poetry, um, you know, you have, to, you have to shift the terminology so people think it's something new, so they don't think they already know what it is, and so on and so forth. So it's now faith-based poetry. If you have a follow-up course to this, it'll be faith-based poetry of the 21st century. It's rising phoenix-like from the ashes of these two supposedly dying traditions. Anecdotal evidence abounds that people are reading poetry again, but it's so recent, and that poets are in relative demand. Four or five years ago, Janelle may have been there at the time, Seamus Heaney gave a reading in Chicago. They booked one auditorium for him. They found they could fill 10 overflow rooms as well. He's the commencement speaker at the University of Pennsylvania this year, and I'm um, begging my husband to get tickets to say that he's going so I can fill in, stand in his place. And just last week, uh, this, this was coincidental, Terry Gross of NPR's Fresh Air was interviewing two major editors of, of major presses and talking about publishing trends. And when they got to talking about Heaney, and she said, oh, and Beowulf was a bestseller. And if you know her informal style, she said, how'd that happen? You know? <laughs> and the editor was a bit defensive, and he said, well, you know, um, Ted Hughes' birthday letters made it to the bestsellers list, and that must have been for two or three, maybe as long as four years ago. He was trying to say, it's not so unusual. You know, we know what we're doing, and we chose this. I also found out that, um, that Seamus Heaney's Beowulf, and, and this is amazing to me, is selling an average of 3,000 copies per week over the Internet. If it can happen to Beowulf, <laughs> it can happen to anything. <laughs> You know, Giardi did well. I mean, that's, that's just amazing. And then what I've, what I've already said, Robert Pinsky, I think, is becoming a kind of public poet for us again. He's, he's got an enormous range of projects in which he's involved, including getting contemporary poets to read their own work and put them in archival kinds of vaults, um, expecting, I think, as well, a renaissance. When I was co-directing two literature conferences, separate conferences, I, I was... I was absolutely pleased to find that I had to metaphorically chase Lee Young Lee and Gertrude Schnackenberg around the globe 
first to offer the invitation and then to confirm it. They had so many speaking engagements. That's all within the past five years. Even, I'll try to make this short, but even at the level of popular culture, poetry is making a comeback. I was in Oxford at the time that the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral came out. And that may be the, you know, the back door <laughs> to get poetry in, but it counts. And since you've just read and discussed Auden, stacks of Auden's poetry were literally disappearing. So that, that was interesting. But then when I got back to the States, I was even more surprised that Barnes and Noble had offered Auden's poetry as the kind of counter temptation, you know, like the candy at your, at your side when you go through the grocery store aisle. There was Auden's poetry thinking that American audiences and that's part of what surprised me, to be honest. If they saw it, they couldn't resist buying it. You know, they were, they were stacked up on the counter there. So I'm, I'm going to take that as a good thing, too. Um, I've not seen Robert Pinsky on, on the news hour. I, tried, I actually tried to catch him for, for the purposes of this lecture. I hope he's, he's doing a good job in his post there. And, and Jim Haas before him was um, publishing at least one poem a week in the Washington Post, and he was the precursor poet laureate. To Robert Pinsky. So it's, 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 it's coming back, and I really think, um, well, as one critic put it, one's poets were at the mountaintop in terms of literary achievement and popularity. Now we're happy to see at least a few arriving at base camp. Equally surprising to many people has been the newfound, and again I'm using the quotation marks, newfound audience for literature which engages the discourse of a specifically Judeo-Christian tradition. On the academic side, David Impostato has a book of, of contemporary poetry called Upholding the Mystery, and it's an Oxford anthology book, and I think the Oxford um, publishers do a great job in selecting poetry. He has speculated on some compelling reasons to find Christian or faith-based poetry in general more compatible with postmodernism than with, with the intellectual climate of romantic empiricism which preceded postmodernism. And I won't rehearse all of his speculations, but to Suffice it to say that postmodernity shares with Christianity a suspicion of the enlightenment deification of reason and ultimately accepts the universe, or our sense of it, as a mystery beyond the reach of rational and scientific constructs. Now, somebody writing from the postmodernist view wouldn't have invoked the term mystery, but the gist of it is right. Furthermore, he offers a view of poetry as a kind of language event in the same way that Northrop Frye looks at the Bible as the great code of art, as a series of language events. And I actually found, I didn't know the book um, until a few weeks ago when I was trying to do my bit to support the arts and scanning the poetry shelves at Borders. I didn't know of his book until then, but I find his, his introduction really interesting and fruitful. On the level of general culture and practical economics, Oxford University Press, Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, as well as Scribner, have actually found it profitable to publish works which explicitly frame or reference or explore a Judeo-Christian heritage. Writers like Mary Gordon, Catholic novelist, is she familiar to you? You know, a bestseller has, has really made it possible. Marge Piercy and Cynthia Ozick. Marge Piercy, a poet, Cynthia Ozick, short story writer, both Jewish. And then Kathleen Norris, Presbyterian, honorary Benedictine. She spends a lot of time there and writes about that have helped to make the exploratory ventures possible and profitable. The popularity of Norris and Gordon in particular have made it feasible for publishers to take chances on other lesser known writers for this market. 
Um, Denise Levertov, I'm, I'm going to skip a section here because I'm, I'm sure my time is running out, though I don't have a watch. Two minutes, three. And how long do I have? <laughs> Just, okay. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that. I, I left my watch in the car. Denise Levertov, in the last interview she gave before her death a few years ago, summarized two other changes in the literary landscape that have made religious poetry or faith-based poetry viable and attractive to a general readership in the late 1990s. And this is a quote. Um, and Denise Levertov died in 1997. People have become very tired of the me, me, me kind of poem, the Sharon Olds find the dirt and dig it up kind of poem, which influenced people to find gruesome episodes in their lives, whether they actually happened or not. And I have some poetry collections that are like that. I'm almost hesitant to read because it seems kind of too gruesome and intimate a glimpse into someone's private life, as it, as it were. I'm a Victorianist by training. Or you had to have been abused. I know perfectly well that lots of people really have been abused, but it's unfortunate to assume that the fact of abuse is passport to being a poet, which I think is telling of the strain which immediately preceded some of the poets I'm going to talk about. And it seems that readers are tired of that kind of egotism. Um, I'll tell you, it makes going to poetry readings now a lot more fun. I, about 10 years ago, I used to feel like a kind of voyeur when some poets would start reading and wanted practically to avert my, my glance as they talked about things that were so private. Now, the new tendency, because of the new kind of poetry, new formalist, which I hope to introduce you to, the poet has to, has to set up the poem. Denise Levertov would have to say, this is who Julian of Norwich is. Louise Erdrich might tell you about St. Clair, at least give you a few dates and contextualize, which makes it a kind of a richer exploratory experience and, and um, much more like the dramatic monologues, um, a definition of which I've given you on that sheet, and the, the romantic poets, the poetry that they practiced. Then the interviewer asked her this question. If submerging the ego involved a kind of spiritual quest, specifically religious or not, in his words, if understanding poetic inspiration helped her to imagine what it would be like to have religious faith. And of course, he, he didn't know, obviously, that she is a, a, a Christian poet of sorts. And she answered, when I started writing explicitly Christian poems, I thought I'd lose my readership, but I haven't. I think interest in religion is a counterforce, and again, she's talking in 1996, I imagine, to the insane rationalist optimism of the late 20th century, an optimism that did not pay off in cultural or technological terms. And now I'm pasting in from another interview she gave. Moreover, there's a hunger to know what most of us thought we knew, but have forgotten. To invoke the long view, the 12 centuries you have been studying, it's interesting to note that in the 1990s, an interviewer would assume that, quote, what it would be like to have a religious faith is a po as an imaginary construct dependent upon poetic powers. And it is even more interesting to note again that a woman writer would be the designated spokesperson for the Judeo-Christian tradition. And it's cliche by now, so I'm not going to go through it all, to invoke the many centuries in which women were literally, metaphorically, or effectively silent within the tradition. And of course, the silencing is said to begin with St. Paul's um, admonition that women remain silent that turned into pseudo-philosophy and pseudo-theology in some cases. And there were, of course, startling exceptions in the, in the past. Hildegard of Bingen, Christina Rossetti, uh, and their works remain. But, but they felt compelled to offer a kind of apology. You know, Julian of Norwich says, I'm a woman unlettered, feeble, and frail, 
And since I'm not a medievalist, I was looking a bunch of things up before this talk to talk about the Levertov poem. People debate her literacy and, and excuse that as an apology. They debate whether or not she actually could read or not. Um, uh, but they, but they, don't, they don't do much with the woman part. They, they assume that that's there. And it's interesting that in the second book of showings, which came 20 years later, that, that particular um, passage is missing. Christina Rossetti, she wrote a commentary on, on the book of Revelation called The Face of the Deep. And when someone told her what a, what a wonderful source it was for exploring the riches of the book of Revelation, she said, I, I had no desire to be a teacher. I'm not intending to teach. I can't do that. She just, she's not a diffident poet, despite the persona of her poems. Um, and she's not timid. That was one of the few uncharacteristic gestures. You know, don't, don't think I'm trying to speak out uh, as an authority on this tradition. In fact, by her time, to be a religious poet, a devotional poet or poetess, is the more delicate phraseology of the 19th century would have had it, uh, sanctioned, was sanctioned by the Victorians. But that same trajectory that put Christina Rossetti and Elizabeth Barrett Browning in favor with the late 20th century, with the, excuse me, the 19th century, caused them to fall out of favor in the 20th century. Comparably, the editor of a recent anthology of medieval women writers noted that the problem of anthologizing medieval women writers is that contemporary editors no longer find devout Catholicism, monastic contemplation, overt didacticism, or conformist religion interesting enough to be included in anthologies. So it's surprising to find in the early 1990s and early 2000s that there are women writers who are prosperous and prolific. I'm going to skip one more section here. That by granting themselves permission to speak, that women, and to be fair, men, I wanted to mention those other poets, are writing once again on matters of the flesh and the spirit from within the parameters of a Judeo-Christian tradition. And for women, the voicing of their opinions comes at no great cost to their literary reputation or to reach further back their status as women. A fortunate concurrence of influences and factors has made this decade rich in resources for what could be an extended course. I'm going to have to skip some more, <laughs> as it were. Um, because I want to go right to that lecture overview sheet and, and jump to the bottom, if you don't mind, because now I know my time must be practically up, and now I will stay at the podium. Ten minutes? Okay. So these people whose names I've been invoking, and, and I, I'm, I'm shamelessly trying to propagandize. You know, if somebody buys Gertrude Schneckham, U.A. Fanthorpe, she was, she was nominated to succeed Seamus Heaney as the Oxford professor of poetry, first woman nominated to that post in its 300 and... 20 must be year history, as it were. So, so these credentials are, are, are sound, as it were. If I can get you to buy them, I'll be happy. Um, the poets I've mentioned, most of them belong to what's being called the new formalist school, the new formalist school. And they're often put or set up, and they set each other up, by the way, in antithesis to what's called the language school of poets. And the, the language school of poets, typically, and I'm giving you a really just, you know, kind of introductory, broad, it's going to falsify in, in the way that all generalizations tend to falsify somewhat. The language poets are almost everything, though they would hate to have me describe them this way, that postmodernism seems to, postmodernism claims not to endorse anything, but seems to endorse. They're anti-form, anti-hierarchical. There's a self which asserts itself against the chaos of the world, their works are often self-referential because 
the self really is the only reference we have. And I'm making you know, gross generalizations, as it were, and some of language poets' work is, is really fine. Um, but it's the antithesis to what's being called the new formalist school. And the new formalist school advocates a kind of return to form, obviously, things like the sonnet or terzarima or whatever, practicing within that kind of, of craftsmanship, as it were. They go back to ideas of, of language as, as being you know, capable of, of evoking beauty and power. And, and those words, even maybe 20 years ago, uh, a poet would have been hesitant to say, I think one of the reasons we were just talking about this in the, in the last session, that T.S. Eliot was such a bad reader of his own poetry, is that he wanted to show that poets were serious people, <laughs> and, that, and that verse didn't have to be pretty, as it were. And as wonderful as his poetry is, his readings did a good job of, of, of showing both things. Well, the, the new formless poets are, are re-engaging that longer literary tradition and producing works that I think are quite accessible. Um, Denise Louboutin isn't technically a new formalist, but, but she's of their ilk, as it were. Did you have a chance to read Gertrude Schnackenberg? She, she clearly is a new formalist. And she, by the way, given your interest, has a wonderful collection called The Gilded Lapse of Time. And the title sequence takes, it comes from her being at um, Dante's tomb at Ravenna and writing on it. They're doing the things that the other poets of the past did, modifying it for contemporary purposes but evoking much of, of what we associate with poetry and expect of poetry, at least those of us who still do. And what I wanted to do is to set up that, that contrast. And I'm just going to do it one, you know, really brief. And I'm, I hope that my notes are more or less self-explanatory um, as I outline what the new formalists are doing. But here's your um, comparison. Michael Palmer. Think of Paradise Lost, think of Dante, think of all the people who have written long books on concepts of paradise. Michael Palmer is, is one of the preeminent language poets. His definition is that paradise is a mildewed book left too long in the house. And that comes from a, a line of his poetry. And, and what I wanted to do was to have you just see that set against, and by the way, as a deliberate kind of antithesis, and, I, and I'm not trying to debunk the merits of the language poets, but to the kind of mellifluousness um, in Louise Erdrich's St. Clair, and that's an atypical poem for Louise Erdrich. The, the lines are beautiful. You know, I was reading them last week, and it almost put me to sleep, but that's only because the sounds were lulling me. Denise Levertov said a poem is a sonic, sensuous event. Gerard Manley Hopkins thought a poem could be understood over and above its meaning by listening to the sounds. And the new formalist poets are doing a lot with sound, having sound make sense, as the old adage would have it. Clearly, I really can't go through all of that. What I would really like to you know, practically you know, beg you to do, as it were, and I had a lot more anecdotes um, about what these writers are doing, is, is read some of these poets. And I would be happy to provide a, a, you know, a supplemental bibliography, as it were, if that would be helpful. Um, yeah, I, would, that, I can easily do that. In fact, I just have to go back to my computer and hit print. Um, and I want to refer you to two more books before I let you go, because I think just given the contours of this course and what you're studying, you'd find them fascinating. One is by David Rosenberg, and it's called Communion. 
I don't know if David Rosenberg is familiar to you. He collaborated with Harold Bloom to produce the Book of Jay, which caused its own splash. <laughs> He's a poet. It's contemporary Jewish, no, contemporary writers, Jewish and Christian, speak out on the Bible. And it's communion. David Rosenberg is the editor. And I think that's the longer subtitle. It's an anthology. And then another really interesting one is called Out of the Garden, Women Writers on the Bible. And I know I've referenced that somewhere. Last night I recall trying to figure out how to do the umlaut on my computer, as it were, for one of the editors' names. Out of the Garden, Women Writers on the Bible. And from that I got the Rebecca Goldstein essay that I had you read, who, by the way, is class of Princeton something. I don't know what year she graduated. Um, who goes back to looking at Lot's wife. They're both anthologies in which the writers, contemporary writers, and it reads like a who's who's list among writers, go back to talk about their religious heritage, the literary tradition, personal or cultural, and how they've reclaimed, rediscovered, or uncovered the riches that were already there. And it's just, they're absolutely fascinating collections, incredibly varied. Thank you. We have time for some questions, if you, if you wouldn't mind. I think I've already taxed their patience. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, quite uh, impressed with the, uh, some of the younger writers, if you will. Of, can you hear that? Um, an interesting thing is that uh, I'm happy that I have two writers who do share their poems with me and the interesting thing uh, and I don't know whether this 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 carries through both of them are la uh, English is not their first language and looking at at least a couple of the names here also and I was just wondering is wh whether that was just kind of a uh, you know uh, you know something unusual or whether or not there is something to this uh, one of these is is actually a, a, a PhD scholar in English yeah, oh, indeed. They're, they're in, as a matter of fact, one is getting their, finishing up her thesis, which she shared with me in some of her poems. Uh, she, but she's getting it in France, and yeah. uh, and the other is from Poland, and so it's very interesting. Oh, and of course, there's a great contemporary <laughs> Polish poet now, who's a woman whose name, my husband's Polish, but I can't. <laughs> By the way, this 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 <laughs> this fr this this yeah. French lady. Uh, her parents are Polish, both. So yeah. even though she lived her whole life in, in France, and right. France is her Well, to further hook language. you on Denise Levertov, I'll use Denise Levertov to answer. Denise Levertov is British. You know, she was, she was born in England, you know, moved here in 1948, I guess, um, emigrated. She's known as the master of the American idiom, of the line, following William Carlos Williams. And the interesting thing that, that she points out is that if you have a, a foreign ear, you hear better. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're paying more attention. And some of the stuff I didn't get to, but I would have liked to, is people reading the Bible that they thought they knew, and it's almost always in the King James Version, as, as Kathleen Norris says, you've got to stay away from things like the New Standard Revised because it's Star Wars talk, you know, <laughs> hail, no, hail, favored one, or whatever. <laughs> and what they're finding, too, is that that, that language is an almost foreign tongue, and that they're, they're more compelled to pay attention 
because it's not too familiar. And I think with um, Lee Young Lee was mostly raised in the States. His, his father was a political refugee, but within his family, they didn't speak English. And so, you know, I think they heard the sounds better. So I, I think that is true in general. And of course, there are ethnic poetry is, a, is an enclave within the subcategory of poetry. Oh, one more thing, if, if you're the least bit interested too, I've, there's an incredible web page, the American Academy of Poets. You can click on, and I saw that Lee Young Lee is there, you can click on these various poets, and if they're not there yet, they're in the process of, of working on biographies and short introductions um, to the poets. That's how I got whole, no, my, my computer died on me last night. I, I overworked it, it needed to be liberated. Um, but if you go, you know, search American Academy of Poets, You'll, you'll find it. I mean, that's how I got it. We could also possibly send that out with the tapes. That's sure. something that we... Right. If, and, and like if I said, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to put together a bibliography and have it slightly annotated and sent out. That's great. What's the situation, do you think, with um, translations now? It used to be that part of a poet's training was to do translations. Oh. Is that something on the way back or yeah well not. I can't I can't speak for perhaps you could for poets tra or perhaps you could for how poets are being trained now um, but translations are coming back in you know Heaney Beowulf Pinsky put Dante's Inferno right up there too did you read the Pinsky version of, of the Inferno for this course he um, a, he was you know kind of thrown into a more general fame from having translated the Inferno and by the way that original project they were going to have contemporary poets each translate a section of Dante. And Pinsky was proposed, obviously, for the Inferno. He ended up doing the whole thing. People lost time. Heaney for Purgatorio. And then Gertrude Schneckenberg <laughs> for Paradiso um, with that, that project that didn't come to be fulfilled in that way. And I do know that, well, you know, and um, Gertrude Schnackenberg has a, a section on some of the Russian poets in which she's translating their poetry. Yeah, I think, I think contemporary poets themselves are tired of the resources of just their own egos and self-referential lives. And they're successively reaching further out. And, and, that, and ironically, that's bringing it back in. You know, I had, I had my good line there at the end. I was going to quote Professor Fleming's first lecture to give you the final... Um, note for this, and that would have invoked part of that, how there's, there's a kind of reaching out again that's, that's, you know, now drawing back and pulling the tradition forward, and translation is clearly a part of that. I just think it's a good exercise. I mean, I, I know that I struggle with and pay attention to language more, particularly because I'm not good at it, uh, when I'm trying to read a foreign language, and, but that, that makes me better able to use my own, much better able. So I would hope. I'm almost afraid to ask, ask this question because the kind of basic question has been going over my head as we're going through this class. And the reason I'm afraid of two reasons, really. One is I don't think you've already answered the question. I mean, you're sort of heading uh, in that direction toward the end. The second is that it may sound like it's an anti-poetry question. The basic question is why write poetry? I mean, I think you were talking about... <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think you were at the beginning talking about what's happening to poetry and... Is it all right. pro and so on? And so I don't think you were answering that. No, don't. <laughs> and I think I have Bottom some. Of my sheet is I think I have some 
ideas about why the Bible is in verse or the Iliad might be in verse. Mm -hmm. But if you're a if you're a modern feminist and you want to communicate, why would you write in poetry? Oh boy, <laughs> that can go all kinds of places. Well, first of all, why write poetry? Um, I'm going to answer that first. First, because that's easier. But second, I don't think I can answer the latter part of that without answering the first. <laughs> poetry is a, it's a special kind of language. It, if, if we're reading it well, and I'll, you know, I'll steal Emerson's line, we're all good poets, strong poets, when we read a poem well. We're using our, our mental facilities and our language facilities in a different way. It's much more cryptic. It's concentrated. It's multivalent. It was fun to sit in on a discussion and see that you could just make it keep unfolding. It's deliberately ambiguous. And all of it in a kind of, you know, if you're paying the right kind of attention or if you're paying the right kind of attention in writing, all in a kind of concentrated form. And, you know, Dryden in the 17th century said, you know, we write poetry because it's more memorable. If there's anything important that you want to remember, and if you want it seared into the brains of people, put it in poetry. And I can always prove this in an introductory poetry course. I start the students off and I say, "Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house. And they can say, well, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. They can go through all of that. And I said, so your parents made you memorize that? Were you lashed if you didn't get And then I go, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers set forth. And instead of that kind of monotone feedback, I get a, you know, they, they lose it. So... So poetry is, is more memorable, and, and you can fall back on the argument, too, that the best prose is poetry. Yeah, when, of course, that was for oral purposes as well. It was passed. And I, um, you know, the Victorian period, the 19th century, is really my period, and I love the novelists, but I, I'm surprised sometimes to find just how much of it's in my head that I unintentionally memorized and hadn't known that it was there until suddenly I'm trying to illustrate a point, and there's Tennyson's in memoriam, as it were, with, the, with that wonderful cadence that it has and, and the beauty of the words. Um, I think poetry suffered some from too many people trying to send out messages. Who was it that said, was it Golden, if you want to send a message, use Western Union? You know, I, I think when it became, you know, too freighted with an agenda, and Denise Liebertov says that, by the way, too, even though she wrote some of that, that it lost its poetic merit. So you had, you know, kind of incongruent mixing of forms. But I would still argue, and this is why I thought it was a tricky question, that you can get people to pay attention kind of obliquely to some of those same issues if you can seduce them through the, the language of poetry. And I think that happens. Um, Denise Lievertal does that all the time. She's always, she was, always put upon the spot for certain kinds of public opinions that they hoped she would give. And she would tend to say, you know, well, read my poetry. You'll find what I think there. But she was really hesitant to proclaim a kind of political voice, even though, again, one of the poems you've read deliberately invokes a contemporary political situation. So, yeah, I, I, you know, old language would have said it's the language of the soul. <laughs>